Here, I'm on our defending your right to speak and to listen. This is the Free Speech Union Podcast. Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, can you all hear me clearly enough? Very good. Well, it's, I'm glad to see such a strong turnout for our event this evening. Um, free speech, that's why we're here. It's, it's topical. Though in many ways, it seems like everyone gets to define what it means differently. There's a lot of versions of that definition going around, but we get to hear a, a slightly more enlightened individual than the rest of us probably comment on that tonight. And, and that's going to be um, engaging and fun, hopefully, as well. You know, for me, uh, the reason I'm as interested as I am in free speech is, is because of where I grew up. Uh, and I think the context that we each come from is so relevant to forming who we are. I grew up in a post-communist environment in Mozambique and was educated in Kenya. And these were not environments that celebrated free speech as I heard in the liberal West occurred. And so when I came to New Zealand for university studies, it was uh, very interesting to see how that reputation lived up. And even just over the decade or so that I've lived in New Zealand, I think that is changing. We live in a culture that is uh, finding itself more and more baffled by the concept of free speech and possibly even downright antagonized by it. And so hopefully tonight we will have an interesting, productive and respectful conversation around this. Uh, For those of you who follow the work of the Free Speech Union, you'll know that not all universities have been as welcoming as Victoria University. And uh, we had a very similar event scheduled at Auckland University of Technology on Tuesday, which after several iterations was cancelled outright because of lobbying within the administration there. Uh, We know that Victoria University has been under under similar pressure and they have stood against uh, those lecturers and those students who have opposed our being here tonight. And I think we should applaud them for that. But we also acknowledge that there may be some students here tonight who are not in favor of of us having the opportunity to speak. We ask that if you are respectful of us, we will be respectful of you. That is the essence of free speech. And hopefully, uh, even tonight, we will all be able to have a say. Uh, But to introduce our speaker tonight, we have Dr. Michael Johnson, who is on the faculty here uh, at Victoria, who will be introducing Calder Frank. Thank you, Jonathan. And... um... It's a great honour to introduce Carl tonight. Uh, I met Carl about a year ago when he uh, kindly came as a guest onto a a podcast that I host with my colleague, James Kirstead, who's here tonight as well. Um, And, of course, Carl is a founding member of the Free Speech Union and was a member of the Free Speech Coalition, its predecessor. But Carl's contribution to free speech in New Zealand goes back many decades because... He has been a journalist, a writer, and an editor of newspapers uh, in this country. And, of course, the media uh, is absolutely essential to the culture of free speech. It makes or breaks it in many ways because a a media that honours free speech does a lot to make sure that the values of free speech remain alive and well in a country whereas a media that does not do so quickly starts to strangle those values. And I suspect Carl may have a few things to say on that score this evening. But with no further ado, I will now hand over to Carl. 
thanks for coming, Colin. We'll very much look forward to what you have to say. Thanks very much, Michael, and thank you all for coming. Um, the American judge, Oliver Wendell Holmes, famously said that free speech doesn't allow you to falsely shout fire in a crowded theatre. But if someone wants to fire, shout fire tonight, I suggest you do it now so we can get it out of the way. Um, I'd like to start by thanking Victoria University for making this venue available. Um, in an ideal world, thanks shouldn't be necessary because universities are supposed to serve as institutions of free thought and, and as places where established ideas can be challenged and debated. In fact, universities are statutorily charged with doing exactly that under the Education Act. But the reality is very different. And sadly, what's happening here this evening wouldn't necessarily happen in other New Zealand universities, as Don Brash found out several years ago, and as the Free Speech Union uh, itself has found, has found out when the planned meeting that Michael referred to or Jonathan referred to uh, had to be cancelled at Auckland University of Technology uh, because of aggressive lobbying by transgender activists. It's a tragic irony that universities where free speech was once championed, the classic example being Berkeley, the Berkeley campus of the University of California, um, which was the home of the free speech movement in the 1960s, um, have now become synonymous with cancelled culture. On that note, I want to make a special point of thanking Michael uh, and his colleague James Kierstead, uh, both members of the academic staff here who are supporters of the union and who helped to make this event happen. I think it takes real courage to fly the banner for free speech amid a censorious intellectual climate. I should probably also make it clear at the outset that while I'm a member of the FSU, as Michael said, and I obviously support it, I'm, I'm, I'm not an office holder, I don't have any official position with the union, and I don't claim to speak for it. So the views that I express this evening are my own. Right, that's the preliminaries out of the way. Um, my old friend and former journalism colleague, Barry Saunders, who's also a member of this union and is here tonight, welcome Barry, sent me an email last week ahead of this event. Barry has also has always written very concisely and his email consisted of just one line. Carl, he said, did you ever think 10 years ago you would be speaking about free speech? The answer, of course, is no. Ten years ago, we smugly believed that all the big debates about freedom and democratic values had been won and that we could all relax. Ha, more fools us. The American political scientist Francis Fukuyama even wrote a book about it called The End of History and the Last Man, in which he postulated that with the end of the Cold War, humanity's ideological evolution had reached its end point and we could all bask forever in the sunlit uplands of liberal democracy. How wrong he was and how naive we were to believe it, because in the past 10 years or so, and that's how quickly it's happened, all our comfortable convictions about the unassailability of free speech have been turned on their heads. Suddenly, we find ourselves fighting again for rights that we assumed were settled. We've become accustomed to hearing the words, I support free speech, but... New Zealand is full of people in positions of power and influence and authority who purport to defend free speech, but always with the addition of that loaded word, but. You can't say you support free speech and then, in the next breath, put limitations around it, other than the ones that are already clearly established and understood 
such as those relating to defamation, for example, and incitement to hatred or violence. We have been introduced to phrases unheard of a few years ago, such as cancel culture, speech wars, hate speech, gender wars, safe spaces, culture wars, trigger warnings, transphobia, and no platforming. We've acquired a whole new vocabulary. We've seen the creation of multiple no-go zones where no one is permitted to say what they think for fear of offending someone or oppressing a supposedly vulnerable group. We've seen the emergence of a media monoculture in which all mainstream media outlets adopt uniform ideological positions that effectively shut out alternative opinions, even when those marginalised voices <laughs> may represent mainstream opinions. We've seen traditional ideological battle lines totally redrawn as people on the left and right of politics unite around the need to save freedom of speech from a new and powerful cohort of people who have co-opted the term hate speech as a pretext for banning any opinion that they dislike. We've even seen radical feminists who were once at the cutting edge of politics demonized as dangerous reactionaries who must be shut down because of their opposition to a virulent transgender lobby that appeared to spring out of nowhere. All this has happened within a remarkably short time frame. Mainstream New Zealand has been caught off guard by the sheer speed and intensity of the attack on free speech, and as a result has been slow to respond. But what's at stake here is nothing less than the survival of liberal democracy, which depends on the contest of ideas and the free and open discussion of issues, regardless of whether some people might find them upsetting. I could recite a long list of incidents, but to save time and for the benefit of people here who may not have closely followed the free speech debate, let me just remind you of some of the better known ones. First up, the aforementioned Don Brash, barred from speaking at what was intended to be a low-key Massey University seminar where he was invited to talk to political science students about his political career. Now, regardless of what you think about his politics, Don Brash is no one's idea of a dangerous demagogue. Yet the Vice-Chancellor of Massey, who, as an Australian veterinary professor, is eminently qualified to decide what opinions New Zealanders can safely be exposed to, cancelled Brash, citing security concerns a fashionable pretext, as we'll see shortly. It later emerged that in reality, the Vice-Chancellor didn't want Massey to be seen as endorsing what she described as racist behaviours. This was a reference to Brash's involvement in the group Hobson's Pledge, although Hobson's Pledge had nothing to do whatsoever with the, with the planned seminar. Emails subsequently released under the Official Information Act showed that the Vice-Chancellor frantically cast around for spurious mechanisms under which she could legally ban Brash from speaking. As a result, even people fiercely opposed to Brash's politics, and there are many, were appalled by this flagrant curtailment of his right to free speech. Now, let's move on to the Canadians, Lauren Southern and Stephen Molyneux, who were barred from speaking at an Auckland council-owned venue following the intervention of a grandstanding mayor, again under the pretext that protesters might disrupt the event. We still don't know what poisonous beliefs the Canadians were supposedly peddling because we were never allowed to hear them. That cancellation was a, was a catalyst for the formation of the Free Speech Union, which, as some of you will be aware, has taken a case all the way to the Supreme Court in an attempt to clarify whether threats of disruption 
should be allowed to override the free override the free the free speech right. The outcome of that case is currently pending. The union has made it clear, incidentally, that it neither supports nor opposes whatever it is that Southern and Molyneux stand for. The point at issue is the right of New Zealanders to be exposed to opinions and ideas, regardless of whether people like the Mayor of Auckland and the Vice-Chancellor of Massey personally approve of them. The right of free speech, after all, means the right to hear as well as the right to speak. Our Bill of Rights Act doesn't just talk about the right to speak freely. It refers to, and I quote, the freedom to seek, receive, and impart information and opinions of any kind and in any form. That seems pretty clear-cut and unambiguous. To deny New Zealanders the right to hear opinions that some politicians and public officials don't like is a flagrant abuse of power and must be challenged at every turn, which is exactly what this union is doing. Now, another notable case, notable for all the wrong reasons. Seven distinguished academics wrote a letter to the listener questioning the notion that mātauranga Māori or traditional Māori knowledge should be given the same status as science. That triggered what was possibly the most shameful demonstration yet of intolerance toward ideologically unfashionable ideas. In an unprecedented pile-on, more than 2,000 fellow academics, urged on by Professors Sean Handy and Susie Wiles, signed a letter denouncing the listener seven and implying they condoned scientific racism. The sheer weight and vehemence of the denunciation sent an unmistakable message to the academic community. Express dissent at your peril. Both the Tertiary Education Union and the Vice-Chancellor of Auckland University, what is it about Vice-Chancellors, who should have led the way in defending the seven professors' academic freedom, <coughs> shamefully did exactly the reverse. What started as an academic debate on an issue of public importance and interest thus took on the character of a 14th century heresy trial. Two of the listener seven faced expulsion from the Royal Society, an organisation dedicated, ironically, to the advancement of science. Again, it was the intervention of this union, combined with an outpouring of international derision from luminaries such as Richard Dawkins, that persuaded the, the Royal Society to pull its head in. Last month, the union was able to announce that the society had pulled off its witch hunt, but too late, I would suggest, to salvage its credibility. Those three examples give some indication of what the defenders of free speech are up against, but not all cases attract that level of public attention. Please allow me to touch on a few others that show how insidious attacks on free speech have become. There was a mini furore at last year's Featherston Booktown Festival, where organisers cancelled a Harry Potter quiz because it might distress the trans transgender community, given that J.K. Rowling is a vocal opponent of transgenderism. In another exquisite irony, the same book festival included a panel discussion on cancel culture. <laughs> As I wrote on my blog, this was the point at which real life did its best to outdo satire. <laughs> The Booktown organisers could have driven a stake into the ground and politely told the, object, the objectors to bugger off, but they didn't, and the result was another grovelling capitulation to the enemies of free speech. And yet another exquisite irony, there was the case of the late Jim Flynn, an internationally acclaimed emeritus professor of political studies at Otago University. Professor Flynn wrote a book entitled In Defence of Free Speech, the university as censor, 
but was advised that his British publishers had changed their minds about publishing it because it raised, and I quote, sensitive topics of race, religion, and gender. So a book about the dangers of censoring free speech for fear of causing offence was itself cancelled for fear of causing offence. On a lighter note, there was a complaint to the Advertising Standards Authority in 2019 about an advertising sign for Streets Ice Cream that said, and I quote, ice cream makes you happy. According to the complainant, the sign promoted an unhealthy relationship with food. <laughs> now, you might think that the Advertising Standards Authority would have politely told the complainant not to waste its time, but no, the authority solemnly ruled that the sign should be removed because, and I quote again, the implicit claim that there is a link between ice cream and happiness could potentially undermine the health and well-being of consumers. The enforcers of free speech are not noted for their sense of humour. Another case that might at first glance be dismissed as flippant involved a bulldozer, of all things, in Marlborough. At the, height of the Black, at the height of the Black Lives Matter crusade following the police murder of George Floyd, the bulldozer owner, obviously feeling things were getting out of hand, spray-painted the words ALM, Equal Rights for Kiwi Rights, on the blade of the bulldozer. The letters ALM apparently standing for All Lives Matter. For this dangerous act of incitement, he received a visit from the local police. A neighbour had complained that the words were racist and the police persuaded the bulldozer owner to paint over them. The particularly disquieting aspect here to me is the involvement of the police. There's a very real prospect that with the proposed criminalisation of so-called hate speech, it would fall to the police to determine which opinions cross the legal threshold. We have ample evidence from Britain of the dangers that arise when the police are politicised and overzealous constables take it upon themselves to decide what speech is safe. Now, speaking of the police, I want to refer briefly to the blogger Cameron Slater. In the words late last year through an OIA request that Slater had been under police surveillance. A police intelligence analyst was, con was concerned that Slater was publishing information that denigrated Labour Party policies and individuals linked to them. Another officer expressed concern that Slater was, quote, anti-government, unquote. And a senior sergeant suggested they should pay him a visit. In other words, there are people in the police who apparently think that anyone who criticises the government should be watched. This is how police states begin. Fortunately, in this case, wiser senior officers stepped in before things got out of hand. Of course, Slater is a highly controversial figure and a lot of people dislike him. But it's cases like this that test our real commitment to free speech. As the left-wing American activist and writer Noam Chomsky has said, if we don't believe in freedom of expression for people we despise, we don't believe in it at all. Speaking of Chomsky, a striking aspect of the speech wars is that they cut right across the traditional battle lines between left and right. It's a fact of history that suppression of free speech has far more often been used against the left than the right, which probably explains why leftists, veteran leftists such as Chris Trotter and Matt McCartan are supporters of this union. The reality is that the enemies of free speech have no fixed ideology. Control is enforced with equal brutality, whether it's Nazi Germany or communist North Korea. The only thing that the enemies of free speech have in common is a desire to exercise untrammeled power 
and to forcibly suppress any speech which threatens that power. As it happens, the present threat to free speech in New Zealand doesn't come from either the traditional left or the traditional right. It comes from a powerful new cohort that is influential in politics, the bureaucracy, academia and the media, and which sees the exercise of free speech as serving the interests of the privileged. Free speech to them means license to attract to attack oppressed minorities and is therefore something to be deterred, if not by law, then by, by denunciation and intimidation. Depressingly, this group is entrenched in universities and libraries, institutions that have traditionally served as sources of free, free thought and access to knowledge. Libraries were at the forefront of the effort to shut down the feminist group Speak Up for Women, which was targeted by transgender activists because it opposed legislation allowing men to identify as female. It was only after this union went to court on the feminist behalf that libraries in several cities were forced to back down and allow Speak Up for Women to hold public meetings. A common factor in these instances is the belief that people have a right not to be offended and that this right takes precedence over the right to free speech. It's as if the woke elements of society have developed an allergic reaction to the robust democracy that most of the people in this room grew up in, where vigorous debate was seen as an essential part of the contest of ideas that democracy depends on. If a statement can possibly be interpreted as a slur against one's gender, race, body type, or sexual identity, it will be no matter how innocent the intention of the person who made it. Apologies will be demanded and the ritual humiliation of the transgressor inevitably follows. The purpose is clear. It sends a message to others that they will get similar treatment if they're bold or foolish enough to challenge ideological, ideological orthodoxy. Yet paradoxically, the same people who insist on the right not to be upset don't hesitate to engage in vicious online gang-ups and ad hominem attacks on anyone who disagrees with them. A recurring theme in the speech wars is the notion of safety, not safety from physical danger, which is how most people understand the term, but safety from anything that might upset people or challenge their thinking. Some of us first became aware of this phenomenon in 1991, when the Christchurch nursing student Anna Penn was effectively expelled from her course after being branded as culturally unsafe. Since then, the highly inventive concept of safety has widened further to the extent that it's now invoked if there's any risk that some fragile soul might feel psychologically damaged by something written or said. This confected notion of safety was made explicit in law earlier this year when Parliament passed the so-called Safe Areas Act, under which people can be prohibited from maintaining protest vigils within, 100, within 150 metres of any places where abortions are performed. In this case, the word safety had nothing to do with threats of violence or intimidation. A pro-life group wrote to all the country's district health boards asking if they had received any complaints about harassment or intimidation from staff or women attending abortion clinics. None had. In any case, the Law Commission had already advised the government that the legislation wasn't necessary because existing laws had the situation covered. As one pro-life activist said, the law change addressed a problem that didn't exist. It was passed solely to reinforce an ideological shibboleth. 
The Safe Areas Act was a test of this union's commitment to free speech because the union had to disentangle the implications for free speech from the polarising issue of abortion, on which many of its members have conflicting opinions. But the union emphatically opposed the legislation and said in its submission, and I quote, it is not the speech of the majority that requires vigilant protection, it is the speech of the few that must be jealously guarded. Regardless of one's views about abortion, there are several worrying aspects of this new law. First, it appears to introduce a highly subjective new concept of entitlement to protection against emotional distress. Second, the anti-abortion group Voice for Life is concerned that it could create a precedent under which anti-abortion opinions could be classified as hate speech under proposed new speech laws that the government is so far keeping under wraps. Third, it creates the impression that the right to protest is now subject to an ideological test. There are now two categories of protest group, those that are acceptable and those that aren't. The right to protest is conditional on the protest being one that those in power approve of. It's somehow hard to imagine, for example, that Parliament would pass a law protecting delegates to defence industry seminars. Yet in 2019, one such seminar was cancelled because the organisers, citing past experience with aggressive protesters, were concerned for the safety of, of delegates. Needless to say, the cancellation was greeted triumphantly by the disruptors. Safety, then, is a highly elastic concept, critically important for women attending abortion clinics, but not a problem if those who feel threatened are white guys in suits. The enemies of free speech are often blind to the contradictions in their position. They bang on about the right to be safe, but they, are, but they applaud aggressive and intimidating behaviour against people they don't like. And they demand protection against hate speech while freely indulging in it themselves on Twitter and other social media platforms, their purpose being to bully people into silence. You don't have to look far to find evidence of other inconsistencies. Chloe Swarbrick apparently saw no contradiction last year in writing a newspaper column eloquently extolling the right to protest while voting to deny that same right to anti-abortion activists. Similarly, Trevor Mallard and Chris Hipkins are both proud of having once been arrested for protest activity, yet both supported the Safe Areas Bill and apparently saw no inconsistency in denying a right and denying others a right that they once vigorously asserted for themselves, and quite rightly asserted for themselves. But perhaps the most shameful aspect of the Safe Areas Act, to me, was that it sailed through Parliament virtually unchallenged, save for a few courageous individual MPs, none more so than those from the Labour Party, who followed their consciences and voted against it. To their lasting shame, National and Act, the two parties that should have fought it, waved it through. If there are any representatives of either of those parties here tonight, I, for one, would be interested in hearing why they so cravenly rolled over. If National and ACT don't believe in such a bedrock democratic value as free speech, we're entitled to wonder what they do believe. Now, if I can go slightly off topic, I'd like to talk about the New Zealand media. It's only slightly off topic because, as Michael alluded to before, free speech goes hand in hand with a free press. But it's now clear that proponents of free speech in New Zealand can no longer rely on the media for support. That was made obvious when NZME, owners of the New Zealand Herald, refused to accept a perfectly lawful advertisement from Speak Up for Women. That advertisement consisted simply of the dic dictionary definition of woman 
as an adult human female, followed by the kicker line, say no to sex self-identification. That's all it said. Wildly inflammatory stuff, clearly. Far too hot for the Herald to handle. I can claim to be something of an authority on freedom of the press, if only for the reason that I've written two books about it. Back then, and I'm talking about the 1990s and the early 2000s, the concern was with threats to media freedom from outside sources, principally the state. But ironically, we're now in a position where I believe the New Zealand media abuse their own freedom. They have fatally compromised their independence and their credibility by signing up to a government scheme under which they accept millions of dollars in taxpayer funding and in return commit themselves to abide by a set of ideological principles laid down by the same government. Defenders of the Public Interest Journalism Fund, as it's called, justify it on the pretext that it enables the media to continue carrying out worthwhile public interest journalism at a time when the industry is financially precarious. They bristle with indignation at the suggestion that their integrity is compromised, but it is. You need only look at the projects approved for funding to grasp that this is essentially an opportunist propaganda project funded by the taxpayer. From a free speech standpoint, however, it's the ideological uniformity of the media that is of even greater concern. The past two decades have seen a profound generational change in the media and a corresponding change in the industry ethos. News outlets that previously took pride in being broad church, in other words, catering to and reflecting a wide range of interests and opinions, are now happy to serve as vehicles for the prevailing ideology. They have abandoned their traditional role of trying to reflect the society they purport to serve. The playwright Arthur Miller's definition of a good newspaper as a nation talking to itself is obsolete. The mainstream media are characterised by ideological homogeneity, reflecting the views of a woke elite and relentlessly promoting the polarising agenda of identity politics. The implications for free speech are obvious. What was previously an important channel for the public expression of a wide range of opinions has steadily narrowed. Conservative voices are increasingly marginalised and excluded, ignoring the inconvenient fact that New Zealanders have far more often voted right than left. Dissenters may still succeed in getting the occasional letter to the, pub to letter to the editor published, but most are forced to turn to online platforms. Hence the growth of websites such as Kiwi Blog, the BFD, Breaking Views and the platform, which now fill the yawning gaps created by the mainstream media's highly selective management of news and comment. But it's worse than that because the prevailing ideological bias doesn't just permeate editorials and opinion columns. Its influence can also be seen in the way the news is reported, in the stories that the media choose to cover and perhaps more crucially, in the stories they choose not to cover. I'll give Three Waters as an example. Underlying this is another profound change. From the 1970s onward, journalism training, previously done on the job, was subject to academic capture. Many of today's journalists were, subjected, were subject to highly politicised teaching that encouraged them to think their primary function was not so much to report on matters of interest and importance to the community, as to challenge the institutions of power. Principles such as objectivity were jettisoned, freeing idealistic young journalists to indulge in advocacy journalism, push pet causes, 
and sprinkle their stories with loaded words such as racist, sexist, homophobic and misogynist. In the meantime, older journalists who adhered to traditional ideas of balance and objectivity have been methodically managed out of the industry. Worse even than that, we now have mainstream media outlets that actively suppress stories as a matter of official editorial policy and even boast about it. I'm thinking here of climate change, a subject on which major media organisations have collectively agreed not to give space or airtime to anyone questioning conventional wisdom on global warming or even the efficacy of measures aimed at mitigating it. This would have been unthinkable 10 or 20 years ago. People are bound to wonder what else the media might be suppressing. But I've gone on long enough. I want to conclude by saying I've been a journalist for more than 50 years and I've never felt that freedom of, that freedom of expression in New Zealand was in greater danger than it is now. We live in a climate of authoritarianism and denunciation that chokes off the vibrant debate that sustains democracy. There are promising signs, however, and this meeting is one of them. As I said at the start, the sheer speed and intensity of the culture wars caught the country off guard. Ours is a fundamentally fair and decent society, eager to do the right thing and rightly wary of extremism in any shape or form. For a long time, we stood back and allowed the assault on democratic values such as free speech to proceed virtually unopposed. We were like a boxer, temporarily stunned by a punch that we never saw coming. But the fight back has begun and it's steadily gaining momentum. In giddy moments of optimism, I even sense that the tide might be turning in the media. Even the most clothy of media bosses must eventually realise that they have alienated much of their core audience as reflected in declining newspaper circulation figures and in opinion surveys measuring trust in the media. To finish and to remind us of what's at stake, I want to quote words that may already be familiar to some of you. They come from the courageous Lutheran pastor Martin Niemöller, who spent time in Nazi concentration camps for his opposition to Hitler's regime. First, they came for the socialists and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out, because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out, because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. Thank you. Thank you very much, Carl. Um, lots of work through there. Uh, unfortunately, our microphones aren't working here, so we'll repeat for the recording whatever questions are raised on the floor. Um, James, would you like to respond to Carl's challenge? <laughs> we, we have um, Act MP uh, James McDowell here tonight, who is the uh, sponsor of a very interesting piece of legislation, which perhaps you would like to speak to briefly as well. But um, would you like to respond to Carl's comments around the safe zones uh, legislation, first of all? Michael, Michael may have a microphone working there now. Uh, so, uh, yeah, good evening, everyone. Um, regarding um, the safe zone uh, legislation, obviously that was Member's Bill, uh, Lewis of Wall. Uh, the, uh, I, I would point out first that the existence of that debate, of the bill to establish the safe zones, only came about because of our opposition to the prior bill where it was automatically included. Uh, so um, the, the fact that the debate was held at all um, to look at the wording of what a safe zone actually was, what you can and can't do, 
how you balance the freedom, um, you know, freedom of, of choice versus freedom of expression and, and basically removing the word communicate uh, so that what you're left with, and it's on the hand side, it's on the record, so courts can figure this one out, um, is basically you can't obstruct somebody uh, within that defined area, which seems pretty reasonable. Um, even, you know, if you really the whole thing was not actually about abortion, it was about what is reasonable in, under these circumstances. Uh, so you can't obstruct them. Um, standing in front of them and screaming at them is is not great, uh, but in terms of communication, uh, that can still be done if it's done in a sort of a more passive way or whatever. Uh, so it, it, we got it debated, we got it out of the original bill, we got it watered down, we said, right, well, uh, you know, this isn't actually about abortion and we're happy with it in its current stance because we just think if you're harassing somebody going into this, um, it's not particularly great. So that's kind of my general response. Um, alternatively, I'd say if you want a better explanation than that, uh, go on to Parliament TV or read the Hansard and uh, David Seymour's speech on uh, the third reading is great. Equally, uh, the fantastic Free Speech Union podcast sat down with Brooke Van Velden to discuss that so you can hear more exposition there. James, would you like to tell us briefly about your piece of legislation, which is relevant to um, our experience here tonight at AUT and, and more generally for free speech on university campuses? Sure thing. Uh, well, that should be, uh, it could be debated next week, but it's probably not that likely. Um, sorry, just looking at my advisor. Uh, so uh, it'll be in the next few weeks, uh, most likely, and that'll be the first reading. Uh, unfortunately, um, I can uh, inform everybody that it will be the only reading. Uh, so we have, the, the way we worded this bill was to basically defend freedom of expression on university campuses uh, by requiring universities to have a code of practice that they can set out and the government can agree on of saying how they um, protect free speech, um, but also what do they do when, you know, there is a speaker who actually wants to come onto campus and, and say you should go and kill this group of people, you know, actual crime, incitement, you know, incitement of violence. Um, because at the moment, the dubious health and safety uh, requirements or, or, or leaning on things like that uh, is just a real convenient, dodgy way of deplatforming people. And we're saying, right, this has got to be, um, A, you've got to protect freedom of expression, um, but B, you also need a proper you know, practice if something does go wrong. Um, we made it pretty flexible in the, in the initial draft of the bill. Um, basically, you know, Labor could have said, okay, look, we'll go along with this for now and we'll work on it in select committee and whatever. Uh, you know, we, we weren't that prescriptive off the bat. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, the Minister of Justice, uh, Chris Farfoy, has, um, you can know I hate that letter anyway, so it's fine, um, has written to me and said, uh, no, I'm sorry, um, I, I commend your, uh, you know, your work and interest in freedom of speech, uh, but this is not a priority for this government at this time. I wonder if there are any other questions. Uh, Stephen. G'day, Carl. Uh, thank you for um, such a great... A, um, a survey that's a reminder of how many different fronts this has become a problem on. I've been um, concerned that a lot of people who would otherwise support free speech unreservedly uh, have pause when it's expressed as freedom of expression, and the expression extends to things like uh, very deliberate offence, which has no reasoned content, in other words, flag burning at a Anzac ceremony, which uh, Valerie Morse uh, got away with, uh, where the senior judges basically said a, a specific act of parliament wasn't going to be applied, and instead they applied some American dogma about freedom of expression. And um, you had a case in Westport, I think it was, where 
people had set out to keep a police, uh, a senior policeman awake at night, or it might have been a judge by banging on things all night. And it's very hard, uh, and maybe the abortion one's another one, where the expression is not, I think, what the classical um, originators of the right of free speech thought of as the freedom to put arguments and facts and, and debate and inform people, but instead it becomes a form of coercion. So I, I wonder how you would feel if we framed our defence of free speech so that it didn't need to go past speech that was essentially in a uh, protection of informing and reasoning and arguing and didn't extend to expression that in, instead tried to coerce or overbear and to win by, um, by intimidation, a form of intimidation. It, it, it's, a, it's not where we are now. It's not where the American courts have gone. But I think it would be a lot easier to defend if you were not having to sustain uh, people who've set out not to reason, but essentially to um, offend to such an extent that reason isn't involved. The, the hard area on such an approach would be where satire sits, and satire has been a vital part of, of, of getting rid of all sorts of, um, of uh, uh, gross, gross abuses of authority, um, and one does set out to offend when you mock. So you need to, to ensure that any approach uh, recognises that there is a persuasive power in mockery. Can I just respond very briefly to that? Thanks, Michael. Um, Do you want to, sorry, yes. so we keep it on the recording. Okay. Um, Stephen, what you've just said uh, illustrates um, pretty vividly that um, it's very hard to establish hard and fast lines uh, with, with free speech. It's, it's very hard to establish precise boundaries. Um, myself, I tend to be a bit of an absolutist uh, when it comes to free speech. I believe in the right to give offence. I even believed in Val Morse's um, right to burn a New Zealand flag, although I'm aware that it created outrage, and I understood that, and I know that you were offended by it. Um, uh, I guess from my personal perspective, the right to protest ends where you transgress the rights of others. Um, for example, where you physically impede other people from going about their business, and I would never defend, for example, anti-abortion protesters standing in the way of, of, of people who are women who are trying to get into an abortion facility. So that's kind of my very uh, rough and raw kind of ground. I, I, I think free speech stops short of people um, trying, for example, to prevent people from getting into a perfectly lawful conference, which is what happened with that defence industry seminar that I mentioned. I... Now, I'm probably putting myself on the line here, but um, I was a protester against the, uh, the, the 1981 Springbok tour, as I'm sure some people in this room were, and I objected to some of the tactics of the protesters then, uh, where they obstructed the right of other people to go about their business, they blocked roads. I, I drew the line at that. The Royal Commission in relation to the mosque shootings came out with some recommendations in relation to hate speech. 
would you be able to summarize the reasoning behind those recommendations and your response to them? Off the top of my head, I can't uh, recite um, the Royal Commission's reasoning. Now, what I do believe, though, is that it has never been definitively established that lax speech laws contributed in any way to what happened in Christchurch. Uh, and I think Christchurch, as, as appalling as it was and as shocking as it was and as traumatic as it was, has been exploited as, a, as an excuse to interfere with uh, people's rights of free speech. Yeah, I can't, I can't really say any more than that. Thanks very much, Carol. I really appreciate what you've given us. Um, you may be aware that Elon Musk has broke the basket, as it were, uh, on the large Twitter field. And um, he recently, I don't know if you're up with the play with what he's been saying on his own Twitter field, but he mentioned that he felt that the limits of free speech should be what is lawful. Should be. What is lawful. Okay. Yep. And, well, I thought that that was a very definite line. Uh, it's local because it depends on the country and in some instances, the area that you're in, because other countries, unlike New Zealand, have actually got different laws in different places within the same country. And my question to you is, how do you feel about that as a definition of what free speech should really occupy? I wouldn't, I wouldn't attempt to get an off-the-cuff uh, answer to that. Um, I'd, need to, I'd need to think about that. I mean, you raised an interesting point. Um, does, does the right to free speech depend on the demonstration of that free speech being lawful? That's something I kind of wrestle with. Bernard Levin, the great British columnist, um, said that um, free speech is for liars, uh, liars and rogues as much as for honest men. Any any statement, um, I'm trying to get the correct wording in my mind, any statement providing it's lawful um, is entitled to the protection of free speech. And I, I, I can see situations in which um, uh, illegal actions uh, can, can be justified in, in the uh, pursuit of free speech. Um, and in fact, I think there are situations in repressive, repressive societies where people pushing for free speech have no option but to challenge the law. As for, um, as for Elon Musk and, and Twitter, uh, <laughs> um, I, I kind of view Twitter much like I view um, an electric fence as something, something to keep well away from. But I can, I, I, I can only, um, I can only uh, go by what I read, which suggests that Elon Musk will be a friend of free speech. I think, I think Twitter has been an utterly poisonous um, uh, source of, of um, inflammatory rhetoric um, from, from every side of the political spectrum. And, I mean, it, it, that may not change now that Elon Musk owns it, um, but I guess if he, if he does profess to be in support of free speech, then perhaps we can at least look forward to an improvement in that regard because 
there is evidence uh, that Twitter has been um, censorious of views that the people running the, 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 San, the San Francisco Stasi, I saw them referred to as um, just a day or so ago, uh, and they have been busily censoring anything that they find objectionable. And if that, if that ends, well, well and good, I think. But, you know, the jury's out, as they say. Well, one of the one of the problems I see uh, with free speech uh, is that uh, the, uh, the the that it's not protected at all, and that the Bill of Rights Act is is so weak uh, that the courts can decide to overrule it, and so can uh, Parliament. So I was wondering what your view is uh, on a proposal that's out at the moment that uh, there is a petition before Parliament to elevate the Bill of Rights Act to supreme law. Yeah. where it can't be overridden by the courts yeah. or, or by parliament, um, almost as is the case in the USA, where it is constitutionally protected. What's your view on, on well, elevating its status? I actually think, uh, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but it seems to me that the Bill of Rights Act has it about right. I mean, I, I actually think that it, that it, that it is a... Uh, uh, um, a wonderful uh, piece of legislation. Um, it states, our, states pretty unequivocally um, and unambiguously uh, what our rights uh, should be. Um, how, that, how that's interpreted by the courts, of course, is, a, is another matter. But I'm, again, I'm not a lawyer, but my impression is that the courts haven't been too bad in, in trying to honour the spirit of the Bill of Rights Act. Um, but you raise an interesting point. Should it be, should it be supreme law? Right? You know, I, I think there's a good case that it should be what the Americans call uh, supreme law. But having said that, I think it would still be subject to interpretation, just as the First Amendment is in the United States to interpretation by the US Supreme Court. So I don't think it's necessarily a sort of magic, a magic solution. Uh, but I think, I think it's such a profound statement of values that it deserves better status than to be just another act of power. That's my feeling. Um, just in respect to the Twitter comment, um, in New Zealand, if you want to look at it as a, you know, regionally specific uh, definition, the words misinformation and disinformation have just made their way into legislation in New Zealand. So those are arguably some of the most legally ambiguous terms we've ever seen make their way into law. Um, which is really concerning. So if you can speak to those two um, words, but my question actually was, um, I don't know if any of you guys have been noticing, but I, you filter through the mainstream media and I saw five news outlets, you know, like one, RNZ, News Hub, et cetera, et cetera, repeat literally the same article, like same headline, same. Uh, at best, they shift the paragraphs around, but they're the same article. So my question is, um, do we have a case for in freedom of press for some kind of an antitrust clause? Like what kind of legal protections do we have or should we have against the monopolisation of the media? I'm, I'm sorry. I, my hearing is, <laughs> is, is, is not good. Um, too many years playing in bands and my... Uh, misspent youth and I, I I didn't get the I didn't get the full gist of that question Michael, let, let me see if I can get it right the, um, the, the question was can, can you comment on uh, the terms misinformation and disinformation uh, as they're being introduced into legislation because they seem like very uh, hazy terms in terms of their meaning and perhaps who would make the judgment am I getting your meaning there right 
And the, the other part of it was uh, I think that uh, there's a, a number of media outlets who are inclined to use just precisely the same story. Uh, is that, have yeah. I got, have I got yeah. the gist of what you were saying? Is there anything to add? Yeah. I have a particular continuous news cycle. Yeah. The same. RNZ, News Hub, and, yeah. and several others. Yeah. So do we have an antitrust clause? Uh, so do we have an antitrust clause? Yeah. And, and what are the legal protections? Against monopolisation. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. I'm not a lawyer, so. <laughs> Attempting to ask the to answer the first part of that question, um, not very successfully, I'm afraid. Um, I I struggle to get my head around the difference between disinformation and misinformation. And if anybody here can provide a uh, provide a lucid sort of explanation of, of how the two differ, I'd be very very grateful. Both naughty. Uh, both naughty. Yeah, we can agree on we can agree on that. I guess. I mean, I, is is one deliberate and the other kind of accidental? I guess. Well, yeah. Uh, I, in, in that case, um, well, we can certainly agree that they're both naughty and they're both potentially destructive, and they both seem to flourish in social media. Um, I I don't say that from personal experience because I'm not involved. I'm not on social media. Um, uh, but I can say that just from what I hear, that there's all manner of mischief that um, that, that is uh, practised on in social media, um, some of it out of ignorance, some of it out of, out of pure mischief, um, some, some out of malice. Um, you know, I think the tone of public debate has deteriorated enormously with the, with the advent of social media, but don't get me started on that. Uh, as for the second part of your question, um, I certainly think that the range of, I mean, just looking at it as a journalist, I think the range of um, information that, that's made available to us, I was going to say it's, it's reduced, but it hasn't actually. I, when, I, when I think of all the, when I think of all the online news sites like um, the spin-off and, and, and um, news, news desk, is it? Business desk. Um, business desk and, and news, uh, newsroom. newsroom. Thank you very much. Um, and there are all these uh, different online um, sources uh, that are that are, and it's impossible to keep up with them. Um, uh, there's my memory for names is failing me again. The political scientist from Victoria University who puts together a daily Bryce Edwards, thank you. Um, puts together a daily compendium of all the sort of significant news and comment on, on, on politics, and it's enormous. I mean, it's uh, to try and digest it would be, to use an old expression, like trying to drink from a fire hose. Um, so I think there's a huge, there's a huge amount of information out there. It's not necessarily all on the mainstream media. Um, my concern about it is that it often comes from the same kind of ideological cast, so we don't have a great ideological breadth in, in, in how it's presented. And as I said in my talk, uh, I, I'm, I'm very worried that there are important stories that go unreported because the media have collectively decided um, that they're better, they're better not being covered at all. Um, the, the, Traditionally, there was a huge amount of copy sharing in, in New Zealand um, when the old New Zealand Press Association existed. Um, you could open any paper in New Zealand 
and read the same stories because they were made available to them all. And, and, and in fact, that was a fantastic service. I mean, New Zealanders knew much more about their own country then in the days of the old cooperative news uh, NZPA arrangement than they, than they do now because somebody in Fire A could read about something that had happened in Nelson and somebody in New Plymouth could read about something that had happened in Oamaru and, um, uh, and, and the, the demise of that um, service was a, was a terrible setback for, uh, for, for the informed public. Um, it was a, and it was a result, uh, as it happens, of, of Australians coming in and taking over the, the two major New Zealand newspaper chains. That wasn't how they did things in Australia. Uh, these two companies that took over the major New Zealand newspaper chains were at each other's throats in, in Australia and they couldn't see why they should be sharing copy in New Zealand, so they just abolished it. It was a tragic backward step for New Zealand, but that's a whole other story. Um, just a question about the culture of free speech and how do we kind of shift the culture so there is that wider public support of just the the idea, the value-neutral idea that free speech should be defended as a principle and it doesn't matter if you're offended by, you know, perhaps someone burning a flag on Anzac Day or something else, but you'll just defend the principle. How do we shift that culture? And you might want to talk about the media as well. Boy, I, I, I bet... I bet Jonathan and the and the people of the Free Speech Union would love to know the answer to that question. I mean, you people here um, are here presumably because you're aware of free speech issues and, and you're concerned about free speech issues. How you how you promote that awareness and that concern out in the general community, I think, is a real real challenge. Um, and I guess you just have to sort of keep pushing away at it in any way you can by by taking legal proceedings as the Free Speech Union uh, is doing, mind you. That depends on those uh, cases being reported in the media. And I think I'm right in saying the media haven't exactly been falling over themselves to publicise what the Free Speech Union has been up to. In fact, I don't know, I'm not even sure the mainstream media acknowledge that the Free Speech Union even exists. Um, and, and, and that's why I say I'm concerned about things, the things that are going uncovered and unreported. Um, you know, the, the, the fact is that most people want to get on with their lives. They've got They've got jobs, they've got mortgages to pay, they've got kids to bring up, they've got sports fixtures to train for on the weekend. And I, I wish I knew how you could make people make the vast kind of middle ground of New Zealand more aware of how important free speech is. Um, I think there's a gradual dawning awareness, and, but, it takes, but it takes time, and I don't think there's any... That's probably no answer to your question at all. I'm sorry. Change the government. <laughs> Just as we uh, head into the last 10 minutes or so of our time with Carl, I know there's nothing more frustrating than being as uh, informed and, and right as Carl is and having everyone already agree with you because he's he's come with some great mic drop moments for people that were going to heckle him and unfortunately we haven't had that tonight. So if there's anyone here who maybe agrees with free speech in general but disagreed specifically with something Carl said or just wants to um, kind of, let's get this more interesting. Someone disagree with him. So up in the back there. <laughs> I'll just talk now. I'll, 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 the recording will just wait. Shall I leave now? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's time. 
So, Carl, I agree with some things you say, but there's one thing I disagree with, and you talked about where protests should draw the line, and that's when it impedes people's free movement or activity or whatever. And I think um, going back to the parliament protests and other protests too, disruption is a very important aspect of bringing about change. And if you don't disrupt the normal flow of things, then no one's going to take notice. And... Did Parliament take notice? I mean, Jacinda says she didn't do it because people were there, but she did. You know, the fact is that you have to push the boundaries in order to get change. And I think most people, not all people, agree that the change we have now with regards to COVID restrictions have been positive. That wouldn't have happened without people holding the line and getting in the way and causing trouble. So I disagree with you on that point. Oh, and I accept that that's a... Sorry, you, you just... Oh, sorry. You, I think it's arguable that, that, uh, that the, the laws relating to mandates, et cetera, changed as a result of the protest at Parliament. Um, it certainly very likely was a factor. It might have happened... Very likely, I think, would have happened anyway. But getting back to your bigger point, and I, I accept that that's an entirely legitimate approach. Um, that you have to you have to make trouble for anybody to sit up and take notice. From a personal point of view, I can't I can't abide um, people uh, feeling so self righteous that they have some sort of um, uh, right to obstruct other people going about their lawful business. I've always had a problem with that. It's just a personal thing. Good evening. Uh, thank you for coming. Try not to drop any bombs here because I might upset people very quickly. Um, first of all, question, how did it spread so fast? How did this cancel culture spread so fast, challenged so many institutes, countries around the world, and has penetrated literally every possible segment of our lives in which people now, not just in institutions like university, are thinking before they're speaking. I'm a Jew. I'm from Israel, and we have a tendency to push boundaries hard. Um, and thank God for that. There's, this, is a, this is something that I say in the morning prayer. I say, thank you for being a Jew. I didn't appreciate that much. But when I came to New Zealand, I found out, and just traveling the world, I found out how big and important it is to, for me to be a Jew. Because I've been confronted by any, any given soul under the sun with hate, um, full throttle hate to my face. But it was a good one. It was one that enabled me to cross borders. It enabled me to talk to the other side. People that came with big ideas, thoughts, beliefs, allowed themselves to actually give two minutes to talk, to share ideas. And now we're in a condition in which my kids come back from school and they say, oh, you can't say that. Can't say what? Yeah. My opinion. How did it came to be? I wish I, could answer, I wish I could answer that. As I said in my talk, it's like society is like a, a boxer that's been stunned by a, a punch that they never saw coming. I don't know where this came from. Um, all I know is that it happened incredibly fast. I, I do believe... Um, I think you said, and I, I didn't hear everything you said, but I think you said you can't blame universities solely, but I think universities have to be fingered as a, as a very um, 
pervasive source of, of this censorious sort of attitude towards speech. Um, and I guess it's something that's been building up over, over a very long period of time. And people talk about, and people have been talking for decades about the long march. Gramsci called it the long march through the institutions, the capture of the institutions by, um, I'm not going to say it's, I'm not going to say the left because it's got much more complicated than that. Um, there's the old left, and we have a couple of representatives of the old left here tonight, um, honourable representatives of the old left, I would say. Um, and so we have to distinguish between the old left and the new left because the old left actually believes in freedom of speech. Um, it's, it's, it's something new that has taken root, particularly in universities and institutions of, of learning. From there, it's spread out and proliferated into the bureaucracy, into politics, um, into the media big time. You know, we, we, I, I, I didn't go to university, and I, I think that journalism suffered when journalists stopped learning on the job and getting their asses kicked uh, when they did something wrong. Uh, and, and, and moved into institutions like this, lecture theatres, um, that was, a, that was a, a terrible setback for, for journalism because journalism has been contaminated by the same thing. Um, how, you, how you identify any sort of original source, assuming there was any single source, I, I don't know. But as I say, I, I suspect in very general terms that it started in universities. I, I, I mentioned Berkeley, the Berkeley campus of of, um, of uh, the University of California in, in the early 1960s, that was the birthplace of the free speech movement where radical students um, defied challenged authority big time and, and, and it spread outwards from there. Now Berkeley has become a byword for cancel culture. How can we live in a country where we have a demigod acting as a tyrant of a country that makes the statement, I am the source of all truth? <laughs> well, let's start with the basis of that. Then we, we go on to the issue of we refer to our, quote, civil rights. Let's make it very perfectly clear in this country. We have no sacrosanct or God-given rights in this country. Those can all be superseded by what is referred to as parliamentary sovereignty or parliamentary supremacy, and that has been in existence since 1689. And if you have any questions about that, please refer back to the Kiwi Party who fought against this government over the gun control issue because the Supreme Court of New Zealand specifically stated the sovereignty aspect of that, which means that when you have a unicameral parliamentary system with a single party in rule, you have crossed over the threshold of democracy into the same thing of what the communists have done, and that's to have a single party rule in the Duma. We have gotten to that point. So the question gets to be, really, how do we get out of this quagmire that we are in when they have paid for the media by $50 million pre-election, $75 million, $75 million after the election, and another 55 to a minority group for their media control? And how do we get out of the situation when they have also gone particularly after Jacinda went over to uh, France right after the Christchurch incident, had a long presentation with Rashan over there and stayed in an additional week over her stay period originally planned. And to have discussions with internet officials to be able to limit what was on the internet. Some of the things that I have tried to review, I am an intense reviewer of what goes on in the media, uh, was the issue of the COVID virus as it was being spread. There were numerous statistical analysis set up. 
And I wasn't even able to go back and review those later on. Uh, the other thing that's happened to me in New Zealand, which I'm really, truly disgusted would be the saying the term. I had a visit by two Wellington police detectives. And I first rebuffed them off. I said, look, I'm too busy to talk to you right now. And then they called me back in two weeks and said, look, we can bring an unmarked car out there if that's going to bother you. I said, fine, come on out. So we sat down and had a conversation. The first thing that they said to me was, we think that you are a Trump supporter. <laughs> yeah, that was the same result that I had about the whole thing. The second thing was that, and I said, well, my well, how about my response? I said, well, yeah, I uh, voted for him because I have dual citizenship. The second thing was, but we think some Trump supporters are white racists and supremacists. And I said, I don't associate with either of those types in the United States or New Zealand. The third question they brought up was really off the cuff. They said, we see that you have watched a video on YouTube about human demographics. And I said, yes, I did. My question gets in the back of my mind is, why are they spying on me? And not only that, I was only one of about 200 other people that the police detectives went to. They went to Vinnie Eastwood six times. They even brought the Armed Defender Squad out in one case. They went to Lee, Lee Williams. They did to him. I can count for another four or five people that I have met over the time frame uh, since that time who have also had police visits. I guess the point gets to, uh, the question gets to uh, the issue of how do we control the government without any bounds to control the people. There are none. Let me, let me give a, a bit of a paraphrase here, and I'll try and keep it short as I can. John Kennedy in 1961 gave the Secret Society speech, and in that speech he said that the only thing business protected in the United States is the news media. And that was specifically so that they could have two views on everything and people could have open and honest discussions. We can't be honest and open in this society anymore. I'm going to listen to what you got to say. I'm, I, I'm not sure what I can say to, to all that uh, other than that it's incredibly concerning to hear that, A, that, that the police uh, go and knock on people's doors uh, asking them about their politics and, and even more concerning uh, to hear that they may have been monitoring what people watch on YouTube. I mean, how, how do they do that? Um, it, 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 as a more general observation, I don't think there's anything intrinsically wrong with our, with our democratic um, structure. I think it's historically served us pretty well. There have been, there have been bad moments, 1951, the waterfront dispute, when we had an extremely repressive government um, Cracking down. I mean, that's probably the, the most severe crackdown on free speech in, in certainly um, in in modern history and living memory. Um, the Muldoon was a was a menace to free speech, but eventually he was sort of journalists eventually took him on and 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 uh, and kind of managed to subdue him almost. Um, uh, but I think, generally speaking, our, our democratic structure does work in a kind of accidental, accidental way. Um, you've, you've had a pretty good, you've had a pretty good shot already. I hope you're going to keep it short. 1951 was the same year you got rid of your bicameral parliamentary system yes. and you unicameral as well. That's right. That could be entirely coincidental. Carl, yeah. hello, oh, uh, John Anzo. I want to have a fight with you. Um, you're talking about. Uh, social media being a bad thing or, or it, because of social media 
um, for all its huge faults, and I wish Elon Musk would buy Facebook. But because of Facebook and Messenger, a hell of a lot of people became informed about the dangers of vaccines that are going to kill a lot of people because they were not curious. And that's the people on Parliament Lawn were the beneficiaries, you know, were the ones who, who benefited from that information, the spreading of that information. So that's just one thing I'd like to bring to your attention. What we are in the middle of, I don't know if people realise, is a communist, globalist, tribalist takeover of this country. It's no small thing. So we need free speech, all right. I was also visited by the police and after the Christchurch massacre and asked if, uh, my opinions on the Treaty of Waitangi. And I said to the guy, look, since you're not armed, like the six armed goons that turned up on another guy's doorstep in Christchurch asking if he was a Trump supporter, come in and I'll tell you all about it. I'll tell you my views on the police as well. Two hours later, he staggered out much informed. He's been, <laughs> he's been back recently. And I said to him then, I said, you know, uh, when the communist takeover comes, this is only 2017, Jacinda had only organised the massacre just a few days before. Um, and uh, and um, or week, weeks before. But uh, now he came back and I said, well, now you've seen the, the communist takeover is in full flight. The question is never going to be my, my guilt or innocence. It's always going to be your degree of complicity, I said to the cop. We've got to be able to say that stuff without us shutting us, shutting, shutting us down, which is what they will be trying to do. It's a very, very serious situation. Uh, and if we don't have full free speech, what we're dealing with is overgrown bully children. Mm -hmm. If I could just make that point. There's no coincidence about this. It's been on the books since 1884 with the Fabian Society, Wolf in Sheep's Clothing, emblem, bit of a sign. They've been trying incrementally to take over and get a world government since then. We should have actually seen it coming, Carl. Um, but that's what's happening, and that's why we are in a precarious situation. That's why we need as much free speech as we can. Thank you, John. I can't think of a question. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess my point is on a similar uh, similar theme, um, which is that I guess in a lot of ways we're past the point where, you know, in order to defend free speech, mere speech isn't necessarily working. Uh, and, you know, the, there's been some good law cases that are still happening, but the, the parliament pro, uh, protest is an example of that. You know, there were the normal appeals to the government which were ignored. There were the normal kind of protests which were also universally ignored by Parliament, and so, you know, it ended up being disruptive and, and to some degree, arguably illegal. Um, but I'd say that that was necessary, and I guess my question is, like, uh, yeah, where do you think the place is for uh, more disruptive kind of free speech movements? Hello. Um, we're in a university, so I thought I'd just uh, raise the subject of the Ethics Committee. Uh, I did a PhD in 19, uh, was it 1980, quite a, started in 1980, took a few years, and that was on deregulation. And there was no such thing back then as an Ethics Committee. And uh, I recently, I still do uh, external advice for students. And one student of Sydney University set up, a, it was going to be an MS Teams event where he gets some experts on rail. And his, his subject was safety. And we got us all together and he said, next week we're going to have this. And then he sent us another email that says, I'm sorry, but the ethics committee wants to make sure that it's going to be, which was quite ironic given the subject, 
a safe space. So you've talked tonight about freedom of speech. You've mentioned freedom of expression, but what about freedom of thought? How do students go about their research today without getting the involvement of the thought police, otherwise known as the ethics committee? I'm not sure that that requires an answer, but I think you make, you make an important point. Thank you all for joining us tonight. I think we have seen proof of uh, diversity of thought even here tonight. We've, we've seen those who uh, have question marks at the end of questions and, and those who don't so much, but we've appreciated all the comments that have been shared um, and, and, and the, uh, you know, the, the willingness to hear from each other in, in, in diversity of thought. Um, I, I have one of the, the council members of the Free Speech Union that I have to report to here tonight, so I'd be entirely remiss and, and scolded come Tuesday if I didn't tell all of you that simply this isn't a, a matter of opinion anymore. We must band together in order to defend free speech. And and around our council table, we do have real diversity of opinion uh, that, that I think strengthens us and protects us. And so uh, we really encourage you to sign up as members for the Free Speech Union. You can do that at www.fsu.nz forward slash, forward slash membership. Um, there's also a donation page there as well, which you may find interesting. But nonetheless, uh, I wonder if we can join uh, together again in thanking Carl for his time and thank you all for your time as well. Thanks for listening to the Free Speech Union podcast. If you would like to learn more about us or find out how you can get involved or support, you can head on over to fsu.nz or check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Kakitiano.